Hello and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we are joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. Today, IISS Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy and API Matsumoto Samata Fellow. Mariko Togashi is making her Japan Memo debut. Mariko, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Robert. I'm delighted to be here. Our guest speaker today is Terazawa Tatsuya, and we couldn't think of anyone better than Terazawa san to join us in discussing Japan's energy policy and the impacts of recent events on Japan's energy security. A brief bio by way of introduction for Terazawa san. He was appointed chairman and CEO of the Institute of Energy Economics Japan. The IEEJ in July 2021. Between January and June 2021, Terazawa san served as special advisor to the cabinet office of the Japanese government to assist Minister Nishimura Yasutoshi on the government response to the COVID 19 pandemic and the formulation of the growth strategy, including the Japanese version of the Green New Deal. Since January 2020, Terazawa san has been a senior specially appointed professor at the Tokyo University of Science teaching international negotiations.、Uh, previously, Terazawa san has held senior positions at the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, most notably as Vice Minister for International Affairs and Director General of the Trade and Economic Cooperation Bureau. Welcome to our podcast, Terazawa san. Well, thank you very much for the kind introduction.、Uh, my name is Tatsuya Terazawa. I'm quite honored to be able to participate in this podcast. Well, energy security clearly hitting the headlines everywhere as a result of Russia's war on Ukraine, which has produced the biggest shock to energy markets, I think, since the 1970s. So lots of instability in global energy markets. And it's also prompted levels of uncertainty, I think, in Japan about Japan's energy security. What are some of the key energy vulnerabilities that have been exposed by this crisis in the Japanese context? Well, to begin with, Japan has always been obsessed with energy security. The background is that Japan has zero oil, basically no gas, and no coal production. And we are not connected with other countries with pipelines or transmission lines. So, energy security has always been our obsession. So,、uh, even before this crisis in Ukraine,、uh, energy security has been one of the、uh, most important、uh, policy objectives. But with this crisis in Ukraine, we are exposed to、uh, further vulnerabilities. One biggest challenge for us is that、uh, we depend on Russian LNG, about 9% of our、uh, total LNG. LNG is important in Japan as a major pillar of our power mix. As many of the participants would understand, following the Fukushima nuclear accident, we had to close or at least suspend. The existing fleet of nuclear power plants. So, we had to scramble to expand our capacity for LNG fired、uh, thermal power plants as well as coal fired power plants. So, with that reason, although our dependence on Russian gas LNG is about 9%, any potential、uh, disruption in the LNG supply would affect our power supply. In addition, With all the market liberalization measures we have taken, especially after the Fukushima nuclear accident, at the time the public was quite angry at the power companies. So the public supported the deregulation of the power sector because it hurt the power sectors, and the public thought it was good for the public.
And with hindsight, uh, there were so many good things about uh, market liberalization, but the side effect is that we have had a shortage of investment for capacity. On March 22nd, this is probably not widely reported, uh, I assume in London, but uh, the eastern part of Japan uh, was facing the brink of power shortage on that day. It was a combination of unfortunate events. It was a very cold day for March. We had an earthquake about 10 days prior to March 22nd, which disrupted the power production by some of the thermal power plants in the eastern part of Japan. The day was very cloudy, especially after the Fukushima nuclear accident. Japan has invested a lot in solar panels, not in wind powers, but in solar panels. But in a very cloudy day, uh, the capacity of solar panels was basically worthless. And combined with that was the lack of excess capacity for thermal power, which is the result of the market liberalization measures that have taken place. So those are combined uh, that led to the near blackout in the eastern part of Tokyo on March 22nd. We expect the situation to be worse for the next winter because the power companies have continued to retire the older and inefficient thermal power plants. When you have very little spare capacity, any power plant will be essential to ensure stability of power next year, and LNG will be crucial in that. So uh, the 9% dependence on Russian gas or LNG might appear to be small or modest compared with the European figure, but it is very important for us in Japan to ensure that we have stable, sufficient supply of power, especially for next winter. So that's the biggest vulnerability. And number two is that while we continue to have a physical supply of oil or LNG, but the price would hit us. It's a global commodity. So even if you have access to the uh, supply of oil or gas, the price goes up. Just like in UK or in European countries, the price goes up in Japan as well. Coupled with that is that the cheaper yen recently, depends on the calculation, but probably the value of yen has dropped maybe 12% or 13% against dollar. So you have a rise in the global commodity price for LNG, oil, and, uh, and coal and uh, coupled by the cheaper yen, it makes the cost of energy very expensive. So it is hitting our consumers and it is hitting our industries. So those are the vulnerabilities that have been exposed. If I could pick up on your LNG point, which is interesting, particularly the the 9% being so important within a context of a sort of unstable uh, energy supply environment in Japan. On the one side, the Prime Minister Kishida's response to the war against Ukraine has has been pretty strong and principled, with measures uh, taken in line with the responses of G7 countries, such as sanctions, removing some Russian banks from the SWIFT payment network, sanctioning key individuals, banning Russian coal imports, and so on. But on the other hand, the Prime Minister said that Japan won't withdraw from the Sakhalin 2 oil and gas project, citing it's important for Japanese energy security, as, as you just also uh, mentioned. What is the future for Japan's involvement in, in, in Sakhalin? And how does Japan sort of balance this very strong response on the one side to, to Russia's aggression, but also sort of maintaining its presence in Sakhalin? It's a tough issue or question, but let, let me be clear that Japan is 100% in support in our fight against the aggression by Russia. 
We are totally on the side of the people of Ukraine. We are fully committed to participate in the international sanctions against Russia, including the sanctions against the uh, SWIFT transactions, including against the import of coal. We depend on coal for thermal power generation, as I described. After Fukushima, uh, we expanded the uh, fleet of our coal-fired power plants. So sanctions against the Russian coal hurts us. We depend about 15% of our coal import on Russia, so it is significant. Considering the importance to, to support the global efforts against Russia, we are fully committed to participate in those uh, sanctions. And Japan has also participated in the release of strategic petroleum reserves. So in those regards, we are in full cooperation with the Western response to Russia. Uh, having said so, for the reasons I've described, we cannot ensure a stability in the power supply and demand without LNG. And this LNG will be very crucial to support our power system. So while being cooperative in every, every aspect of the sanctions, we would have to uh, maintain uh, the supply of LNG. In terms of LNG, uh, the Sakhalin 2 uh, project provides a long-term, stable, and less expensive supply of LNG. If we just hypothetically exit from the Sakhalin 2 and Japan stops importing LNG from Russia, we would still need to have that LNG, and we would need to go to the global spot market because every country, including the European countries, are rushing to get the LNG from the spot market. Number one, there might not be sufficient LNG available in the spot market. Or number two, if Japan pays much more and get the LNG, it will be at the expense of other countries who cannot afford to pay that kind of high price. And the third is that based on the long-term contract from, for selling to, we can get LNG relatively at the cheaper price. But if we go to the spot market, it's very, very expensive. So it will be much more expensive and costly for the Japanese industry and Japanese people. So for all those reasons, Prime Minister Kishida made it clear that we would need to keep the uh, Sakhalin 2 project and we need to keep on importing LNG from Sakhalin 2. Having said so, uh, the gas and LNG is probably the uh, toughest issue, uh, probably the most difficult issue for European countries as well. Among the major energy sources, coal is the less dependent. So that's the reason that sanctions were put against the Russian uh, coal. And the second will be oil. And I understand that countries, the European countries, are discussing about how they can uh, introduce sanctions against Russian oil. But the gas and LNG is the most difficult. To the best of my understanding, uh, the European discussion has not reached uh, gas or LNG because it's more difficult. And the same is true for Japan. Having said so, while we cooperated in coal, we have cooperated in the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve Release for Oil. But for LNG and gas, it will be more difficult. But having said so, Japan can potentially make a contribution to the world by restarting the existing fleet of nuclear power plants. It is not easy. If we can restart one nuclear power plant, it would amount to a 1 million ton savings of LNG. You do the calculation, if it's 10 years, it's 10 million tons of LNG. And this is very significant because based on the Repower Europe, the goal is to reduce Europe's uh, dependence on Russian gas by two-thirds 
by the end of this year, which is very, very difficult. But to make it happen in terms of tons, because LNG is described in terms of tons, Europe would have to uh, reduce its gas or LNG import from Russia by the order of 80 million tons of LNG. That's substantial. That's where the calculation can kick in. As I said, one nuclear power plant reopening will amount to 1 million tons of LNG, and yet you just do the math. If you have 10 units, that's 10 million uh, tons of LNG vis-a-vis the 80 million tons required. It will not solve the problem, but it will be very significant because to deal with the LNG problem, there's not so much supply measure that is possible because there is lead time required to invest and deliver LNG. It will take like four to five to six years. What we can do in this four, five, six-year time horizon, which is very limited, will be much more on the demand side and we can save LNG by changing the temperature uh, for heating, that's one thing, but to have a significant substantial impact, the uh, reopening of nuclear power plants would have a significant impact. But certainly we cannot compromise safety and we need to get the, uh, the consent of the local communities, but potentially this is something that Japan can do. So once again, we need to continue using LNG uh, to ensure that we have a stable power supply and demand. But if we can succeed in reopening nuclear power plants, there will be more room for Japan to provide more contribution to the global uh, gas and LNG market. You mentioned the tough position that Japan and the world is in, especially in the LNG market. In Japan, the 2013 National Security Strategy identifies security and energy cooperation with Gulf countries and Russia as critical to peace and security. Tokyo is currently revising the national security strategy. Um, And in today's context, with the ongoing war in Ukraine, Japan has and will need to further reassess the extent of its energy cooperation with Russia. What changes are you expecting to see in the revised national security strategy, which is scheduled to be released later this year? Do you think Japan's energy policy and security geopolitical policy is integrated enough currently? And what are some challenges Japan may face to ensure energy security with reduced energy imports from Russia? I'm not an insider to develop the national security plan, but from an outside uh, observer, I would have to say that considering the importance of energy, as we are observing following the uh, invasion to Ukraine, certainly energy security should be part of the national security plan. This element might have been touched upon in the past, but it might have been just touched upon in the past. Now we have to seriously integrate the energy security policies with the national traditional security policies. To be more specific, if we continue to depend upon Russian oil or gas, that would lead to vulnerability. That would limit our options uh, for diplomacy or strategic response. So to ensure that we can pursue the best strategic policies in line with our national interests, we have to make sure that we deal with the potential vulnerability of our energy system. And that would require a substantial reduction in our dependence on Russian energy. What we can do, one thing is, as I described, is by having more nuclear power plants reopened so that we don't have to depend upon Russian gas or oil. And also we would have to develop a non-Russian source of gas or LNG. The second thing I said, uh, the 
investing for non-Russian oil and gas is not that easy. For one thing, it takes years. Even if you make the decision today, it will take several years to have the LNG delivered. In the best case, it will take four years. It could take longer. So the time is one thing. The second thing is that there are many policies that have been put into place to deal with the global climate issue, which would make investment in LNG or gas more difficult. So this is something that has to be addressed. There are people who argue that the the right response to the energy aspect of the Ukraine crisis is to accelerate our push for renewable energies or to decarbonize our energy system. In the long term, I agree. And that's the reason why, in addition to reopening nuclear power plants, the existing ones, I believe it is important to construct new nuclear power plants for the long term to reduce our carbon dioxide emission, at the same time which would reduce our dependence on Russian energy. So the long term, it's fine. That's what we should accelerate. But the problem is that it takes years to realize that, longer than the time required to deliver LNG. Uh, so uh, that is the reason why we have to invest in LNG or gas, uh, non-Russian source of gas and LNG that is required. But as I mentioned, the long-term policy of decarbonization in some aspects make the investment in these kind of projects more difficult. I'll give you some examples. There is an initiative named GFANS, G-F-A-N-Z. This is a Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero. This is a pledge uh, led by the Western financial sector, the banking institutional investors, and also insurance companies. And their pledge is to realize a net zero portfolio by 2050. Well, this is a very good, well-purposed pledge. There are a number of financial institutions which may have a difficulty financing uh, the LNG or gas projects with a concern that those investments may be inconsistent with the GFANS pledges. The uh, GFANS pledges were made at the margin of COP26 last November. So I believe that with the recent developments in Ukraine, the pledges would have to be modified or at least interpreted to enable, accommodate uh, financing for the uh, uh, non-Russian source of LNG or gas, which will be extremely important. So this is a challenge for the financial uh, sectors as well. And this would apply to government policies as well. Many policies have been uh, against any kind of expansion of activities for fossil fuels. But with the recent developments and the need to diversify our source of energy outside of Russia, this would require a review of those policies while ensuring the long-term goal of decarbonization are maintained. So this will be more difficult, but we have to achieve both. Uh, decarbonization for the future, for the long term, but also reduce our dependence on Russia in the short to midterm by diversifying our sources of energy outside from Russia. So it will be more difficult, delicate. We have to make the bridge between the short-term, mid-term necessity and the long-term necessity, which will be a challenge, but this is something that we should pursue. So Japan is a resource-poor country and has one of the lowest energy self-sufficiency rates in the OECD, which places the country in a very vulnerable position. 
Last year, Tokyo approved the sixth strategic energy plan, increasing the renewable energy target to 36 to 38 percent of the total power generation by 2030. Are we on the right track for increasing energy security and resiliency? Will this prepare Japan for future energy crises, whether they're triggered by conflicts or environmental disasters? Increasing the level of renewable energies will be consistent with our policy to enhance our energy security. We should be even more committed to realizing that goal of increasing our percentage of renewable energies. Having said so, the difficulty is to realize those goals. Yes, we should expand our renewable energies in Japan, but there are challenges. In Japan, we have been introducing solar panel at a very fast speed, even compared with other Western countries. As you might know, Japan has very limited land space, especially flat land space is very limited, and we have been deploying uh, solar panels in a very accelerated manner in the past. The installment of solar panels in Japan on a per flat land space is much higher than any other Western industrialized countries. So we already have a significant concentration of solar panels in Japan. Uh, we can do more, but it will be incrementally more difficult uh, because the installment of solar panels may compete with other land use and also would have to get the acceptance of the local communities. So that's for solar panels. For wind power, uh, the difference between Western Europe and Japan is that Japan does not enjoy a steady, strong wind flow in Japan. The wind flow is modest. We occasionally have very strong wind caused by typhoon. But the problem is typhoon is that when typhoon hits, we have to stop the wind turbines. And also we have to develop the structure to withstand typhoons, so making them more costly. And uh, the limitation of land space uh, affects uh, the potential for building onshore uh, wind power turbines in Japan. So what about offshore wind turbines? We are surrounded by ocean, so just looking at the map, it appears that we might be able to develop a lot of offshore wind power generation. The problem is that the sea surrounding Japan uh, is very deep. Uh, there's very limited shallow waters as UK is enjoying with North Sea. Um, so there will be a very limited potential for bottom fixed type of offshore wind power generation. So we have to go to floating type of wind power generation. But this is technologically very, very challenging and very expensive. So in the long future, we should be deploying more floating type wind power generation, but uh, it is in an extreme challenge to realize that. As you mentioned, we need to pursue the realization of our goal to expand uh, the renewable energies in Japan, but the challenge is very, very, very challenging. 
the Fukushima meltdown in uh, 2011, that upended Japan's long-term energy policy. And and I can't actually think of many other countries that have had their long-term thinking just changed overnight by a natural disaster like that. But in your previous comments, you talked about the importance of nuclear in in all sorts of strategic ways, and you're advocating building new nuclear power plants and so on. But obviously in Japan, it's still quite politically sensitive as an issue. What sort of things do you think the government needs to do to make the case for that this is an important long-term strategic objective for Japan? I see in the energy uh, plan, the medium-term energy plan, um, the government's proposing, I think, 20, just over 20% of Japan's nuclear power coming from nuclear reactors by 2030. That, that in itself is still quite ambitious, given where we're starting from at the moment. I think we should go with two stages. The first stage is that to restart the existing fleet of nuclear reactors in Japan. At the time of the Fukushima nuclear accident, there were 54 nuclear reactors in Japan. After Fukushima, we retired 21 of them. So there are 33 nuclear reactors remaining. And in addition, there are three nuclear units under construction. But out of that 33 nuclear units that are there, as of now, only seven units are actually generating power for the grid. So 26 nuclear reactors remain without being operated. So the first step is to ensure that uh, the remaining uh, 26 units can be reopened. Uh, This would have to go through authorization from the safety uh, standpoint, but also we need to get the... uh, consent from the uh, local communities. This has not been easy, and that's the reason why it's 11 years since Fukushima nuclear accident, and still we have only that number of nuclear reactors in operation. But with the recent developments, as we see a higher energy price, and also the potential of power shortage, and also the war in Ukraine, I think there will be a growing understanding uh, in the Japanese public for the need to restart the nuclear reactors. Actually, Prime Minister Kishida, about 10 days ago, made it clear in a TV interview that he was strongly in support of reopening the nuclear reactors for the reasons I've described. If we succeed in reopening a significant number, if not all, of the existing nuclear power plants, we may move on to the second stage of the discussion to reinvest in new nuclear power plants, which is certainly more challenging than using the uh, existing nuclear power plants. Japan would face a much more difficult task of realizing carbon neutrality um, without the existence of uh, nuclear power plants. Even if we extend the uh, lives of those nuclear power plants, there will be a limit to how long we can uh, extend the lives. So in order to realize carbon neutrality, for Japan, I think the logical response is to keep a significant portion of our energy mix as nuclear, and that would require new investment in in nuclear power plants. But this is something that we need to communicate more with the Japanese public. We have not been able to communicate the case in a persuasive manner. If we are serious about realizing carbon neutrality, and if we care about securing the sufficient energy supply, the nuclear power plants would have to be a major piece of the total picture for 2050. But I think to ensure the public can understand this argument, 
it is important to go through the first phase and showing that with the restart of nuclear power plants, it helps the economy, it helps the society, it helps the world, they will be safe in operation. So the successful reopening of those nuclear power plants, I believe, could provide the basis for the second stage when we can discuss the investment in, the new, in new nuclear power plants. Shifting our conversation to partnerships, during the past year, major energy partnerships in both the public and private sectors have been announced. Major bilateral announcements have been announced, such as the April 2021 Japan-U.S. Clean Energy Partnership and the June 2021 Japan-Australia Partnership on Decarbonization Through Technology. In the private sector, large companies have announced a 50-50 solar energy venture, while there are many more startups and companies also engaged in addressing energy challenges. Why are partnerships necessary in Japan's future plans? And is the Japanese government currently engaging as well as it can with the private sector in addressing Japan's energy challenges? Partnership with other countries is certainly necessary. For example, if we think about hydrogen, which would be one of the major important uh, sources of energy, we cannot produce sufficient hydrogen domestically. We will either have to produce hydrogen by using renewable energies combined with electrolyzer, produce hydrogen. But because of the um, shortage of available uh, renewable energies, we cannot produce enough uh, hydrogen domestically in Japan. So we have to produce those kind of hydrogen outside of Japan where there is plenty of renewable energies. That would require partnership with countries like Australia or, or, or US or any other country rich in renewable energies. The other option to produce hydrogen is to extract hydrogen from natural gas and then capturing the CO2, carbon dioxide, produced in the process through CCS, carbon capture and storage. That would require partnership with countries like Australia, which is also rich in natural gas, and also potential with countries in the Middle East, which do have plenty of natural gas resources. So it is natural that Japan, to decarbonize our energy system, we would have to partner with other countries rich in either renewable energies or natural gas. Number two, governments cannot actually produce energy or use energy. We need to have the private sector participate in the transition. So it is almost natural and logical that we exploit the fullest potential of the private sector participation. These efforts are long-term, costly, and risky in terms of financial perspective. So if these are left totally to the market alone, we will not have sufficient investment in the technology that is required to, to realize carbon neutrality. So that's where there has to be a partnership between the private sector and the public sector. And the public sector would have to put into place sufficient policy measures and frameworks to incentivize private companies to invest in these technologies. We have been reasonably successful in providing R&D and supporting demonstration for these kind of technologies with the private sector. But the next challenge is to deploy these technologies. And this would require a next step of policy frameworks to ensure that companies will be comfortable investing in those technologies for the long term. And that would require 
policy frameworks to ensure the companies will be comfortable of putting their money in these technologies, even if they may be relatively more expensive than the traditional source of energy. That would require a policy intervention or policy framework. And in the absence of such policy frameworks, the companies will not invest in technologies which might be more expensive without the assurance that they will be used. And that will require a policy intervention. This brings us to our two Japan memo questions, which we ask all our guests on our podcast. And the first one is, Terazawa-san, do you have any book recommendations for listeners who may wish to better understand Japan? The title is Bushido Capitalism. Mr. Kengo Sakurada, he's one of the uh, well-known business leaders in Japan, is making the argument that capitalism can serve society's uh, purpose if the stereotype capitalism is merged with the spirit of Bushido or the spirit of samurai. The spirit of samurai is not the ideal to pursue one's personal interest. The spirit of Bushido or samurai is to make a contribution to the society as a whole. And Mr. Sakurada is arguing that this kind of spirit is that is required for the capitalism of 2022. It's not just to understand Japan, but I think it will give some insights as to the um, future shape of the global capitalism. So perhaps Prime Minister Kishida's channeling Bushido capitalism with his new capitalism. Well, I, I don't know which, which came first, but I think Mr. Sakura would say that he came up with a book earlier than the new, new capitalism by Mr. Prime Minister Kishida. The second Japan memo question is, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Well, I have to ask many foreigners or, or the people in the UK what were wrong in, in their encounter with the Japanese people, but I would assume possibly two uh, typical misunderstandings. One is that for most Westerners, many Japanese people look alike. The assumption is that Japanese people should think alike and monolithic. And that is the common misunderstandings. Japan is relatively a homogeneous society, but you will be surprised to find many, many different views among the Japanese. The second misunderstanding is that, oh, Japan has a very old history. Japan never changes. I admit the changes in Japan are slow. That each small step might be small. After several years, or maybe a decade or two decades, if you look back, the change can be substantial. The stereotype is that Japan is close to foreigners, purely Japanese. That's the stereotype. But things are changing so, so rapidly. The most visible example is the, the teams leading Japan in sports. You will see much more variety of the Japanese. In tennis, uh, Naomi Osaka is, is a very known example. But it's not just in tennis. In, in baseball, in basketball, and rugby, you would see a larger number of foreigners playing to represent Japan. And rugby can be one of the examples that if you have a look at the Japanese national rugby team, you'll be surprised to the diversity of the players leading uh, the Japanese rugby team. The coach is, is, is coming from New Zealand. It's quite global, and people are accepting that kind of diversity as representing Japan. This was not a case even 20 years ago. So uh, I, I think changes do take place in Japan. It does not change dramatically overnight, 
but over years, the changes can be substantial. So this is something that I hope you can watch, and I'm quite sure IISS will provide insights to the changes that are taking place over years. Well, that's a very positive and optimistic way to, to end our, our podcast and a great discussion ranging from energy to rugby. That's a nice uh, broad uh, breadth of discussion. So thank you so much, uh, Teresa Aosan, and also thank you for coming in to do this podcast with us in person. It's been a couple of years since we've been able to, to do this, so we're, we're, we're doubly grateful to have you and appreciative that you've been able to come to the IISS headquarters in Arundel House in, in London. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Program and the IISS more broadly on our website at IISS.org. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are active sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese, geopolitics, and more. You can find us at, at Robert Allen Ward and at Togashi Mariko. Terazawa-san is not on Twitter, but if you are interested in economics, energy, and environment, I encourage you to follow at IEEJ underscore Japan. Thank you again, and see you next time.